0: For those of you who have not met, my name is Ollie, and I help to lead uh, the student ministry here at All Souls. And we're in a series looking at Isaiah chapters 13 to 35. And the question that has been building momentum through these chapters is this one Who will we trust when the enemy is kicking down the gate? And that wasn't an abstract question for Isaiah, because in Isaiah's day, the people of God were surrounded by very real, not at all theoretical, superpowers. On the one hand, Assyria, the new kid on the block, whose use of iron weapons and cavalry had made them an unstoppable force. The Assyrians were building a universal kingdom, stretching from corner to corner of the known world. But to really claim that title universal, there was one key kingdom that they needed to take, Egypt, the old superpower, If the king of Assyria could take the crown of Egypt, then his claim to be the king of the universe would be indisputable. Assyria on the one side, Egypt on the other, and sandwiched in between, Judah. The little, insignificant, and trembling people of God. Trembling, because for Assyria... To get to Egypt, it would mean marching straight through them, trembling, because to Assyria, Judah, well, they looked a little bit like a nuisance, but not much more. So who will we trust when the enemy is kicking down the gate? Who will we trust when the enemy is through the gate and has us by the throat, or to put it in terms that we might find more familiar here in London? Who will we trust when it seems we have been so thoroughly defeated, so absolutely overwhelmed and left behind, that those who oppose us think of us as little more than a nuisance, a shrinking cloud burning away in the bright, blazing sunshine of progress, little, insignificant, trembling. Isaiah's response to questions like these has been to pull back the veil of history and to lay out for us the basic principles through which the Lord is ordering all things for the good of those who trust him. From oracle to oracle, the historical context has been dropping away as Isaiah abstracts out the principles of what God is doing from the historical context in which he is doing it. And it's stunning. But the principles that Isaiah has been abstracting, well, they can feel just that, abstract. Isaiah has principles and promises and thoughts, but Assyria has horses and chariots and iron, visible, visible, and tangible, and in your face. Isaiah has oracles and abstract visions, but London has tarmac and touchscreens, fast food, and flags. It is visible, it is tangible, it is in your face, and it all feels so solid, so substantial, so very strong. Which means if you're anything like me, well then Verses like our memory verse, verses like verse three, can end up feeling just uselessly theoretical to you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. How? And who? And when? What good are principles when Assyria has horses? What good is verse three When the world is in my face and my knees are shaking. That's what we're going to be working through uh, together this evening. We're going to be working through the logic of 26 verses 3 and 4 and what it is that makes these words so solid, starting with who the Lord is in verse 4 and working backwards from there. So, point one the Lord is the rock without limits when this city is up in your face, it can feel like nothing else is quite as solid as London is because this city is so physical. This city has so much substance. But 26 verse 4 wants to challenge that idea. 26 verse 4 wants to challenge the materialist urge to insist that the things you can touch and see and smell are more real than the things that you can't. Look down at that verse, 26 verse four. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. You can't see or touch the Lord. He is invisible and intangible. But according to this verse, there is nothing in all reality that is more rock-like than he is. It's easy to believe that the things we can see and touch are the things that are the most real. But the big paradigm shift we need to do in this verse is to realise that actually the opposite is true. It isn't the visible, tangible things in this world that are most real. It's actually the other way around. All... Of the realest things in reality are invisible and untouchable. All of the realest things in reality are things that cannot be prodded or touched or seen. But that is a really lofty concept for us to get our heads around. So what I want to do is I want us to put a ladder up against that thought to give us some rungs for our imaginations to climb up to it. So here are five rungs to help us climb up to that truth that all of the realest things in reality are invisible. First rung, rung number one, which will be coming up on the screen, is the foundations of a building. You can't see or touch the foundations of a building. They are invisible to us. And that's kind of the point of them. They are dug down deep into the London clay, but in some ways, they are the most substantial and solid part of this very solid city. The foundations of a building are hidden, not because they're less solid, but because they are so deep. So that's the first rung. Things can be both solid and invisible when they are especially deep. Rung one, second rung, words. The words we have been reading here in Isaiah are nearly 3,000 years old. But what about them is actually that old? What part of this book has actually lasted that long? It isn't the ink, it isn't the paper, it isn't the shape of the letters even, The most substantial and real thing about this writing, the thing that has outlasted empires and been translated into a thousand different languages, is something that cannot be directly touched or seen. We can't touch the ink and we can't touch the paper. We can can touch the ink and we can touch the paper and we can see the shapes of the letters, but rung two the strongest and realest part of these words is something that we can't actually touch or see. Third rung, people. All of us have physical bodies and they are precious, but we know that the answer to the question, who am I really, involves a lot more than what anyone can see or poke or touch. To get to know the real me means you haven't just seen my face, you've gotten to know my soul. All those things about me that are obvious in person that could never be found with a microscope. To get to know the real me, you need to know more than what I look like. And in a church with as many doctors as this one has, many of you will have seen this truth firsthand in the area of of end-of-life care. It is a deeply sad thing to be in the presence of a dead body because everything that was most substantial and most real about that person has left. Third rung, it is the soul of a person that is even more real than their body. Fourth rung, physics. What makes physics so real is that you can't actually touch it. And you can't see it because it is everywhere. The law of gravity is powerful and it is so solid that it is what makes this world solid, holding the earth together so that we have something on which we can stand and stamp. But you cannot touch the law of gravity because it is everywhere all of the time. And you can't see it, you can only see its effects. Physics is invisibly, untouchably everywhere, and that is actually what makes it so real, which leads to the final rung on our ladder, rung five, transcendence. What's true about physics is true about a lot more than just physics. Truth, goodness, beauty, justice. What makes truth and beauty and goodness and justice so real is that they are not limited to one place at one time. You can't poke truth. You can't pack a pair of binoculars and go hunting for justice. You can't take a photo of goodness itself. And that isn't because these things are less real than things that I can hold in my hands. It's actually because they are more real. They're more real because they are not limited by physical space and time. If they were, if beauty or justice or the laws of physics were limited to one place at one time, that limitation would actually make those things far less real to us. These things are transcendent, not limited to one place at one time, and that is what makes them more real, not less, because the most substantial things in the universe are the things that are unlimited by physicality which is why rung five, all of the realest things in reality are invisible and untouchable and transcendent. Five rungs for our imaginations, foundations, words, people, physics, and transcendence, helping us to understand that the realest things in reality are invisible and untouchable and transcendent and everywhere. So now let's return to who God is. In Isaiah 26, verse 4, look down with me. The Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal, which doesn't mean he's something you can see or feel or touch like a rock. He isn't limited by physicality. He isn't limited to one place at one time. The Lord himself is the rock eternal. Put another way, The Lord is the rock without limits. Take a rock, remove everything that limits it, all the limits of place and location, all the limits of age and time. Take away all its blemishes and all its cracks and vulnerabilities, leaving you with pure weight, unbridled strength, absolute being, and raw solidity. And that, says Isaiah, that is what the Lord is like. The Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Giving strength to everything that has strength. Giving weight to everything that has weight. He is raw being itself. Giving being and substance to everything that exists. Take a rock and make it eternal. Take away everything that limits it. And that's what God is like. The rock, the rock eternal. Okay, that's the big idea of this verse. If you're still with me, we're doing well, because the rest of these two verses just flow out from that big idea. So once we've started to grasp that point, the rest of it will follow on. Point one, the Lord is the rock without limits, meaning point two, when your thoughts hold on to him, your mind will be made steadfast. As a baby, exploring the world with your hands, one of the things that you learn is that your hands take on the qualities of the things that you grasp hold of, so hold on to something cold, and your hands become cold. Hold on to something wet, and your hands become wet. If you hold something round, your hands will wrap round it. If you hold something weighty, your hands take on that weight. And if you hold something firm, holding it in your hands or holding it under your feet, your hands and your feet are made firm. We take after the things that we hold, And what's true of our hands and our feet is true of our minds as well. If you hold something happy in your mind, your mind will be made happy. If you hold something scary in your mind, you become scared. Hold something weighty and your mind is weighed down. And if you hold something firm in your mind, your mind is made steadfast. Because just like our hands and our feet our minds take after what they're holding. Which means there is no better way of making your mind steadfast than by mentally grasping hold of the Lord, the rock eternal. If you want to steady your mind, there is no better way of doing that than by taking hold of the Lord in your mind. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we take hold of the Lord in our minds? What does it mean to mentally grasp hold of the Lord? Well, the answer is there in verse four. We take hold of the Lord in our minds by verse four, trusting him, putting our trust in him. We mentally grasp hold of the Lord by taking hold of what he has told us, clinging to his promises, leaning on his commandments, committing what he has said to memory and trusting in everything that he has said. We mentally grasp hold of the Lord by trusting what he has told us and that is the only way we would ever be able to do it because the truth about God isn't something we can touch or feel or see. He's far more real than that. And the truth about God is just so much bigger than anything we would ever be able to reason out. He is so much bigger than our cleverest thoughts. We can't grasp the truth about God through our senses, and it is far too wide and big to reason all the way out. The truth about God is something we will only ever be able to mentally grasp through trust. Trusting in what he has told us with a trust that says, I am weak. But he has told me that he is the rock without limits, the everlasting rock, the rock eternal. And I've seen enough of his strength to know that he isn't lying. If you hold something happy in your mind, you become happy. Hold something scary in your mind, you become scared. And when you hold the rock eternal in your mind... Verse three, your mind will be made steadfast. All souls, when we put our trust in what God has told us about himself, the one we are holding in our minds is firmer than granite. He is more absolute than bedrock. He is tougher than wrought iron and he is firm enough to steady your mind. So when you walk out of church this evening into this city of concrete and tarmac and your knees start to shake or your mind starts to tremble, take up these words with your mind. Bring them to mind and grasp onto them by reciting them. Isaiah 26, verses three and four. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast Because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26 verses three and four. And having done that, having taken hold of those words, walk like your mind is built on granite. Walk like your thoughts are cut from marble. Your knees may shake and your thoughts may waver, but the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal and he is solid enough to steady your mind. Point one, the Lord is the rock without limits. Point two, when your thoughts hold on to him, your mind will be made steadfast. And point three, when your mind is steadfast, you will be kept in perfect peace. Most of us in this room will either have experienced anxiety ourselves or know someone who has experienced anxiety. So many of us, I imagine, will know that when you're in the teeth of anxiety in the midst of a panic attack, one technique that might help is grounding yourself, sitting down on the ground, pressing the palms of your hands against the floor, taking slow, deep breaths and naming out loud some of the things that you can see or hear or taste or touch. It can be a very powerful technique for bringing your mind and your body back into harmony with what's solid in the world around you. Resting your hands on what's solid, and so bringing your body back into balance from your palms to your mind to your pulse. Well, what grounding yourself does through your hands and your senses, Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4 does through your mind. When you rest your palms on the ground, they are made firm, but that firmness doesn't just stay in your palms, it runs through your nerves, setting your whole body at peace. And when your mind takes hold of the rock eternal, in Isaiah 26 verse 4, your mind is made steadfast, but that steadfastness doesn't just stay in your mind. Eventually, over time, it will work its way out from your mind to your nerves to your gut instincts and from your gut instincts to the twitching of your muscles and the tips of your fingers bringing your whole mind, your whole nervous system, and your whole body back into harmony with what is most solid in the world from the inside out. It may not happen overnight. In fact, it almost certainly will not. God doesn't normally bypass our wills or our minds in the process of renewing us. He is at work to renew us by teaching us to hold on to him in situations where that's very hard, But the wonderful truth is that it isn't just your mind that God promises to make steadfast. It's all of you. And he's doing that as you take hold of him in your mind, renewing and strengthening and harmonizing you from the inside out. Grounding yourself is one excellent technique you can use when you're panicking. But the good news is that when you do eventually need to stand up again, there is something even more solid than the floor that you can press yourself against, the eternal rock who will steady your mind and keep you in perfect peace. Point one, the Lord is the rock without limits. Point two, when your thoughts hold on to him, your mind will be made steadfast. Point three, when your mind is steadfast, you will be kept in perfect peace. And point four, you will live forever. The promise of resurrection bursts into this chapter like a boulder crashing into a mill pond. Look down at verse 18. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. But, verse 19, your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. This is one of the clearest articulations of the resurrection anywhere in the Old Testament. And having gone through the logic of verses 3 to 4, I think we can start to see how Isaiah found such clarity. God isn't just the fountain of all goodness. He is the rock of all substance, giving strength to everything that has strength, giving weight to everything that has weight, raw being itself, giving being to everything that has being. When we hold on to him in our minds, we take after him. Our minds are made steadfast by his steadfastness and we are kept in perfect peace from the inside out as we ground ourselves on the rock eternal. What begins as an act of the mind to trust in the Lord works itself out from our thoughts to our fingertips, making us solid and firm and steadfast from the inside out. And that, that is the thought that bursts into full-blown resurrection. Because do you really think something as hollow as death could ever keep hold of someone as solid as a Christian? Do you really think that ashes and dust could withstand the rock of ages, Jesus Christ himself, whose loving purposes for you stretch into eternity? Christian, you will pass through death like marble passes through mist. You will rise from the grave like sunshine rises in the morning. At midnight... The world is very dark, but if a single ray of sunlight cannot be stopped by all the darkness in the world, then you will not be either. I know enough of the stories in this room to know how shaky many of us feel. I wish we could see ourselves as Isaiah sees us. I wish that the pavement shook beneath your feet at the privilege of carrying a child of God. I wish that the walls turned to mist in front of you rather than trying to stand up to someone who radiates the weight of glory that you do. I wish that rivers flowed towards you because of your gravity and that light came to rest on your skin. That day has not come yet, but it will. The day when Jesus Christ comes again in glory and his smile renews you from the inside out. And verse one, on that day, verse one, look down, on that day you will sing this song. On that day you will sing about the rock eternal who has kept you in perfect peace. But in the meantime, all souls, sing that song anyway. Sing now what you are going to sing then. Call these words to mind. They are words from your future and they contain more substance than concrete. They are more real than rock. Say now what you will say then. Sing now what you will sing then because Assyria may have iron and London may have tarmac but these words have outlasted empires and so will you. As the band comes up, let me close with some words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that I know many of us will have called to mind in moments where we feel fragile. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let me read them for us as a prayer. So we do not lose heart, are eternal oh man